0: Before you get started with this edition of The Books Podcast, we want to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For everything you need to set your website apart, head to squarespace.com guardian to get 10% off your first purchase. And now, on
1: with the show.
2: The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. With the Booker Shortlist announced earlier this week, we'll be talking to Deborah Levy, appearing on the list with Hot Milk and taking a look at the rest of the contenders. It's been a year of surprises, with no space for big hitters such as Julian Barnes, Rose Tremain, Don DeLillo, Edna O'Brien, Thomas Keneally and others, but there's no shortage of literary quality left on the list. Alongside Levy's Hot Milk are Paul Beattie's The Sellout, Madeleine Teen's Do Not Say We Have Nothing, Graham McRae Burnett's His Bloody Project, Otessa Mosfeg's Eileen and David Siloy's All That Man Is. With me to discuss this changing the guard are our own Claire Armitstead and Sean Kane. When she announced the shortlist, this year's chair, Amanda Foreman, said the judges were excited by writers taking risks with language and form. So, Claire, which one is pushing their prose the hardest?
0: Oh, well, I think that um, Madeleine Tien's Do Not Say We Have Nothing is the biggest book on this list. It's both physically the biggest, but it's also, it covers a huge swathe of history. It's hard history. It's the history of 50 years of China, from the Cultural Revolution through to Tiananmen Square. It looks at language suppression. It even analyses ideograms. So it's looking at the way that different languages print onto each other. So, for example, Mao Changed the Chinese language and introduced a sort of simplified form. So it's how classical Chinese translates into Maoist Chinese, translates into English.
2: How the language itself is transformed. Yeah,
0: but there's another whole layer on top of it, which is about music. And uh, the title, it's, a, it's an interesting title because nobody I know can remember it. Um, because do not say we have nothing. It's there's a little bit awkward, isn't it? It's somehow. awkward, but, and it's just, it's absolutely typical of this book because the title comes from. The translation into Chinese via Russian of a line from the French socialist anthem... The Internationale. All oh, those
2: changes, <laughs> right there.
0: Is so, it, is it that is typical.
2: It's a very kind of intellectual book.
0: Yeah, it's really intellectual, and it's, it's also about um, classical music. And one part of Chinese cultural history that people are not aware of, who are not experts, is that Mao had, uh, was actually very keen on Western music and had an orchestra, Western orchestra. And it was quite a status thing to be into classical music. And um, she has, so she's woven this history with her musicians. It's a, it's, it centres around a group of musicians, their obsession with Glenn Gould's performance of the Goldberg, Bach's Goldberg Variations in 1955.
2: So that's a collision of cultures right there, isn't it?
0: Yes. So, theme, so it, is, it is structured as theme and variations. It actually takes an awful lot of itself from music. But another thing that, that comes from music is the idea of scores being copies of something that was originally written, and that ties in with the fact that copying in Chinese culture means something different to copying here. It's not about plagiarizing. There's a, a, a Madeline's fascinating about this. There's a, an art to the copying of ideograms of, of script that it's it's like a great scholar, a great writer has a rhythm and a music to the way that they write. So a copy is not just a copy.
2: It's it's a way of putting your own form it's, onto it
0: it's about transmission so so this is a novel about cultural transmission how how does the culture transmit in at times when everything is suppressed and people disappear and their work disappears partly how things survive is through the faithful copying and then these copies are kept under floorboards they're sent abroad and in the internet age they're beamed out over the internet
2: and does the story do the characters come through all this weight
0: Yes, I mean, it is a it is a tough read, and I think that's partly because of the theme and, and variations. It sort of goes backwards and forwards through history, and characters do literally disappear. You don't know what's going to happen to them. She's too scrupulous a writer to make you know to reappear them and say oh such and such all this time they were doing such and such they just disappear and that is quite demanding but it you know it, it absolutely repays persevering and and it's a book that grows in your mind after you've finished it
2: yeah paul beattie's taking risks of a different sort with the sellout isn't he sean
1: yeah it's, it's it's probably i'd say the most risky book on the short list just in terms
2: of its subject matter.
1: Um, yeah, it's um, it's a book about race and America and um, identity politics. Right there. Yeah. yeah, and it's a satire, which isn't exactly uh, what you'd call safe territory, but it's um, a really exciting book. Um, so what's the setup? So um, it's about a protagonist called Me... Who comes from a town called Dickens in LA and he's a uh, raised by a father who's a psychologist who does a lot of experiments on his son because they're both black to see whether he can try and make his son more black if that's something that you can sort of measure and then his father dies in a drive-by shooting and uh, Dickens is literally wiped off the map of America because of sort of sheer embarrassment of what this town has become and me starts trying to assert Dickens' position in America by reinstating uh, segregation and slavery in the town of Dickens. And that all culminates with him being taken to the Supreme Court in a case called me versus the United States of America.
2: It just feels extremely timely with all that's going on at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, certainly this week, with everything that's been in the news about Lionel Shriver's speech at the Brisbane Writers' Festival, and The idea of who can say what and who can write what, I'd honestly say that a white writer couldn't have written this book, but certainly uh, Paul Beattie being a black author, he certainly demonstrates a willingness to take enormous risk, it's quite a caustic book, it's quite brutal in a it's way. It's
2: also very funny I mean there's yeah. another kind of risk in a literary culture that doesn't often reward it, humour.
1: It's very funny and and it's kind of nice to see a really really funny book on the booker shortlist because I think uh, certainly just out of my memory when Howard Jacobson won a few years ago. For the thinker question just how surprising that was to everyone I think to have a funny book win the booker and so it's very nice to see this in contention I think. But Paul Beattie's not the only one who's playing with our expectations. There's, there's some debate as to whether David Shaloy has even written a novel in well, All That Man Is. <laughs>
0: in fact, two, our two critics who reviewed it for The Guardian and The Observer both said, no, this is short stories, which is quite a challenge because the booker doesn't admit short stories famously.
2: Yes, no, the, But the rule is famously smudged as well. It's supposed to be a unified uh, work of fiction rather mm. than actually laying it out in black and white that it's short stories. And he insists. and. Amanda Foreman also insists that it's really a novel, and it sort of, kind of, sort of is. I mean, it, it as it happens. I read the short story it grew out of, which is called Europa, in Granter a couple of years back when it was published there. Uh, which is, I mean, it's, and it's really very good indeed. It's extremely well put together. And I guess the thing that interested me, finding it again in this larger book, is whether the construction all around it adds to it or, or winds up taking away. And I, I guess the structure he's made after this this story, which tells uh, about a bouncer. There's two guys coming to London with a woman who is going to be working as a prostitute a kind of high level prostitute and tells of the, the, the interaction between the three of them in this very unusual circumstance and he's built out of that he's kind of gone forwards and backwards in time with a series of narrators who kind of put together seven ages of man each what this he starts with a couple of 17 year olds and ends with an old man in i think his 70s right at the end of the book although there are nine of them that you kind of chart the whole journey through through life with a set of different protagonists and it's very kind of pan european they're all in transit a lot of them. There's, there's the Belgian. There are English people abroad. There are people who are from Eastern Europe coming to England, and it's all very carefully linked together. But I think, for me, it actually might have been stronger if it was, if they were a little different in their tone and feel. I mean, they're very nicely put together and there's lots of well-turned phrases and they come back and again to the same theme which is this is highlighted in a copy of The Ambassadors in the first story by one of the protagonists as being the main theme, which is the question of what to do with life. How do you know when you're really living? If you're a man. Yeah, that's <laughs> another thing. Again, that it is all men and you begin to ask yourself after a little while, well, where are the women? I mean, there are yeah. some women characters in it. But well,
0: they, why should there be women characters in it? I mean, this is an interesting question. I mean, we, you know, do we premise discussion? about literature about what is not in them, the mm. writer has made a positive choice about what they include. But the yeah. question
2: for me is, is whether by putting these other things around it, whether you gain more than you already had in the original kernel. and it seems to me that by doing what is basically the same trick, nine times, he's uh, he's making it seem less real because, I mean, all these interior lives of these very different people are actually very similar. And, and it's beautifully done. There's a lot of uh, repetition of the key phrases here and there's a, a certain amount of formal trickery in the way it's laid out on the page. And it really feels like it makes you feel like you're really inside their heads. But all the heads seem to be fairly similar and they're all having a fairly similar experience. And weirdly, if he'd resisted that kind of grand scheme of thing and made the thing shift in uh, some different directions, maybe had a, w- a woman as a protagonist, for example, mm. then it might have been able to surprise you slightly more.
0: How topical is it?
2: Well, it's funny because it, it is I mean, it is very much, as I say, about uh, crossings of Europe, but it feels very pre-Brexit. It doesn't, doesn't feel like that ability to cross the borders is in, in any way under threat. And there's mm. reading it after the the migrant crisis, the, the refugee crisis, it does feel almost before that as well. So it, it feels almost of a time as it was. And, and the other thing is that, again, Jaquies in As You Like It, with his Seven Ages of Man, Jaquies was, was a figure of fun. The idea that this existential angst is at the kernel of everybody at every stage of life just becomes a little bit one note in, a, mm. in, in some sense. So perhaps if he'd resisted this kind of grand project, this kind of big scheme slightly more and let his book develop in different directions, it would have been more, more interesting. Which brings us slightly on onto um, Deborah Levy, because in, in a sense, maybe she's an example of a writer who's resisted this temptation to make a big statement novel.
0: Yes, well, Deborah Levy is fascinating because she thinks she's written a psychological thriller, but it doesn't have a plot. <laughs> I, I mean, we will hear more from her later on. I mean, I think this is a fabulous novel. I think she's a fabulous writer. It's the shortest. I was saying that Madeleine Thien's is the biggest. This is the <laughs> shortest, but she is such an amazing phrase maker, and she is such an amazing scene setter. She has. She was a theatre director. She has a very visual imagination, which we also saw in *Swimming Home*, which was her previously shortlisted Booker novel. Which was in that case, it was set by a swimming pool Here it's in Andalusia, in a place where this couple have gone to consult a a quack or who may or may not be a quack because it's a mother and daughter and the mother has lost the use of her legs. I'm fascinated by her restraint, And the fact that she doesn't feel she has to ever overwrite. And it just strikes me that there's something going on among women writers at the moment. And I'm absolutely sure she doesn't know the other ones who I will cite. And it's people like um, Ben de la Vida, The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty. My Name is Lucy Barton, um, Elizabeth Stroud, which was on The long list, which was knocked off. And Nelsink's The Wall Creeper. They all have these sort of slightly effectless women at the centre. And they're all... Very, very, it's, it's all between the lines. And it just strikes me that this is, it's like women, there's a, something in the zeitgeist which is about women answering the imperative of the big testosterone-driven state-of-the-nation novel. These are state-of-existence novels which are pared down.
2: So it's daring to draw on a smaller canvas rather than trying to answer all the questions with one book. Well, Richard, is it a smaller canvas? Yes. <laughs>
0: It, it, it's a canvas with, it doesn't have sort of lots of football pitches in it. <laughs> you know, the, but but actually, it is everything. You know, you could say these canvases are everything. It's just that it's not all spelled out.
2: As you say, it's all between the lines.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but uh, I mean, they're existential novels, really. Mm. I think there is a new female existentialism. And I think it is also tied, tied in with a, a, a feeling about where the young generation of women are, you know, the, who are not necessarily procreating, or a lot of the urgencies of, of being in your 20s have gone. Mm. What do you do? How do you forge your identity? And I just, that's one of the things I find really exciting about fiction, is when you suddenly see something in the air, and you mm. just feel that there's, and it, it sort of goes down the lightning conductors of different writers. And they don't, you know, it's not because they're all part of a fashion or anything. It's just there.
2: So you say that she thinks she's uh, written a thriller. But, I mean, someone who really has written a thriller is Graham McRae Burnett. Or is that wrong, Sean? Uh, <laughs> He's not written a thriller either. Yeah,
1: kind of. According to him. I mean, he said um, when he found out that he'd been shortlisted, I mean, his book is certainly being marketed as a crime novel and uh, he sought to clarify that it was a novel with a crime in it but not necessarily a crime novel.
2: Which is a different thing entirely. Yeah,
1: I mean, I kind of see what he means but certainly in terms of the the contents of it and the way it's it's presented, it's sort of presented as a series of found documents and there's a preface by Graham McCrae Burnett at the start saying that he, uh, while doing some research into his family, he found this memoir by a Roderick McRae who uh, wrote this memoir while he was on trial for three murders. So and one of the
2: oldest tropes in the book.
1: Yeah and it's quite interesting though because it is, it, it has been done and certainly even on the long list, David Means in Histopia also used the found document idea but I think it, it's really well done so you don't feel like it's It's kind of been done before in this way. The sheer variety of the documents in there, there's newspaper reports, there's witness accounts, then there's the memoir, then about two-thirds of the way in, it goes to the trial trial. And it just, it, yeah, it really thunders along. It's, I'd say it's a page turner, which i suppose...
2: Despite all this kind of disparate material.
1: Yeah. That I, is very
0: Stephen King, isn't it? I mean, Stephen King uses found stuff
1: yeah, a lot. I, it does, I mean, it, certainly because of the setting, it's set in the Scottish Highlands. It feels perhaps a little removed from King's main. but I do... Get what you mean. I'd say it's it's comparable in, certainly because of the detail. It's quite a chunky book, but it's it just feels very dense as well. But it's not hard to read at all. I'd say it's probably one of the easier ones. I'm really interested in the fact that there are
0: genre figures on this list. Yeah. And so, with Eileen as well, I mean, what's going on? They're definitely, the judges seem to be making a point about what is permissibly called literature these days. They
2: also seem to be interested in books that in some way are in between the cracks. Mm. Yes, They're not one thing or the other, they're playing on that boundary. I mean, Eileen is one whereby she, she says in an interview in The Guardian, she says that she started writing it as a joke because she wanted to make some money after publishing some short stories that were very well thought of and, and a little novella as well. But she started writing this as a joke and she wanted to sort of show how easy it was to, to write this kind of book, a thriller kind of book, and turn that to her own devices. I'm, I'm not sure that it's entirely manages to make the leap beyond that genre into something else. Though. I mean,
0: yes, hmm. what is it that makes genre into literature I mean that's the old vexed question isn't it I think with this book it's about the gap between the narrator and the character who's observed so it's a first person but it's a distance first person and there is such sourness and such spookiness in the distance between the older narrator who has done things which we only discover towards the end of the novel and the young narrator who seems totally ordinary again a, a young woman with nothing much going on from a small town but then she minds the creepiness of that scenario.
2: But the thing is, I think if you're going to make a leap from a genre into a more literary fiction type of genre, I mean, which is arguably just another kind of way of labelling the books, then it's got to be about the quality of the writing. And the voice in Eileen is very hard going, I think. It's quite choppy, there's short sentences all over, the place. there's a lot of repetition. She goes back to correct herself to say, oh, have I already said this? Or I think I said that before. In a way that isn't, there's not very much pleasure in the reading of it.
0: You see, I would disagree with you about that. I think that, that it, it is precisely that, that. That is the literary essay of the novel, is that things like repetition, the fact that she is so flawed, all her perceptions are sort of so limited...
2: Absolutely, but the thing is that if that's what you're interested in, then you need a firecracker plot to keep you going. Whereas if you've got this very slow build towards, as you say, the, these events that happen at the end where the narrator finds herself transformed, if you've got this very slow build with not very much going on and a very unsympathetic character to be spending a lot of time with, then the fact that the prose isn't much fun to read, the fact that the, the descriptions don't give you a new way of saying the, of seeing the world is actually quite difficult. Mm. Mm.
1: That's that's really interesting about the idea of the character being either charismatic or in some way likeable despite what they've done in the book. Certainly with his bloody project, Roddy McRae is like a fantastic narrator and he's hugely charismatic and the fact that the book starts with part of his memoir and also uh, witness accounts, you get a feel that he's somehow wrongfully been charged with whatever it is and then later in the book you realise a lot of what he's Written that you've already read, it was possibly lies, and you sort of don't hold it against him though, just because he has a wonderful voice.
2: Sure, but that's the thing, it's a wonderful voice. It's it's not that a likeable character you have to have a likeable character Mm. in a book. It's if there's no consolation to the actual experience of reading the prose, then why do you want to carry on reading? It's a very difficult thing to enjoy. So, I mean, what do we make of the list as a whole? What do you think if, if you think that the judges are? Uh, looking in between the cracks. What do you think this says about their selection?
0: Well, one thing it says is that they're going for difference. Mm. You know, they're they're striking out. And it signals a generation shift. I've felt that that's been coming on with a lot of the prizes recently, that, you know, they could have had Rose Tremaine, they could have had Graham Swift, Ian McEwan, and they have absolutely not done that. And I admire that, you know, I admire that. And then you come down to the individual books. You know, you and I disagree about Eileen. So, you know, and that's also in the life of a prize, is that people disagree. That is entirely legitimate.
1: Yeah. It's kind of interesting because there is this thing of a Booker book. So when your McEwan comes out or your Julian Barnes comes out, you kind of go, oh, well, that will definitely be on there. And then when it wasn't on there, everyone was really super shocked that these sort of stalwarts of the prize weren't weren't even present for the long list. But it's such a good thing because it was getting a bit boring, I think, for a few years that you could just kind of expect, you could kind of anticipate the kinds of books you were going to see. And now we've got things that are thrillers and we've got...
2: Are you shaking it up a bit? So yeah. Who would you like to see as a winner then? Um,
1: I want Paul Beatty to win. As simple th- as that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really brave book and it's really funny and it just it's three hundred pages of race relations and identity, but you just thunder through it. And on the back of the book we've got a Guardian review that says the longer you stare at Beatty's writing, the cleverer you feel. And it's absolutely true. It's- it does also touch the other book a base, which is it's a, a state of the nation
0: book as mm. well as a comedy, isn't it? Yes. It's about something that's very current and happening and it's about society. Yes. And in the end they tend to that's the way they tend to go. Yes. But you could say it in different ways about. Certainly, say it about Deborah Levy. There is the recession in Deborah Levy. There are all sorts of things. It does it in a very different way. But I, I think that in the end, you're looking for that extra but, dimension.
2: Uh, how about you, Claire? If Paul Beatty is Sean's pick, who would you who would you like to? See?
0: Well I'm torn between Madeleine Thien and Deborah Levy, uh, Madeleine Thien because this is a really substantial piece of work and it's a, a huge, I think it's a massive fantastic document and it's something that we don't know much about. I think that there is a reckoning about Chinese history which is very current but Deborah Levy is just such a brilliant stylist I would be very happy to see her win.
2: So We're going to hear a bit of that now because when she came to the studio she began by reading from the novel.
0: I had been waiting on my
3: mother all her life. I was the waitress, waiting on her and waiting for her. What was I waiting for? Waiting for her to step into herself or step out of her invalid self. Waiting for her to take the voyage out of her gloom, to buy a ticket to a vital life with an extra ticket for me. Yes, I had been waiting all my life for her to reserve a seat for me. The door to the concrete terrace on the beach opened of its own accord. A breeze filled the room, a warm desert breeze carrying with it the deep salt smell of seaweed and hot sand. The waves were crushing on the beach. The table on the terrace had my laptop resting on it. The night stars made in China on its screensaver were open under the real night stars in Spain. All summer, I had been moonwalking in the digital Milky Way. It's calm there. But I am not calm. My mind is like the edge of motorways where foxes eat the owls at night. In the digital starfields, with their faintly glowing paths running across the screen, I have been making footprints in the dust and glitter of the virtual universe. It never occurred to me that like the Medusa, technology stares back and that its gaze might have petrified me, made me fearful to come down, down to earth where all the hard stuff happens down to the checkout tills and the barcodes and the too many words for profit and the not enough words for pain.
0: It's your second time on the Booker Shortlist. How do you feel about it? Were you surprised? Is it slightly less exciting the second time round?
3: Well, when I was writing Hot Milk in my sweltering writing shed uh, last summer, I was absolutely terrified because I was writing in the first person. And at the time, I thought this wasn't a, this didn't play to my strengths because I prefer the third person, which is so much more controlling and elegant and poised and detached. But Sophia, the leading character in Hot Milk, just refused to kind of be looked at in that way, this kind of aerial view of her. So I had to really try something I'd never tried out before in in a long writing career and to be shortlisted twice as you say uh, and one of them for hot milk feels like those those (laughs) that long terrified year um has has kind of come out my way
0: it's your seventh novel you've also written as I said You've done poetry collections, you've done plays um, for both the theatre and for radio. It seems as if the novel is sucking you in.
3: (laughs) Yes. I think I've fallen in love with the novel at a time when the world's falling in love with the TV box set drama. Why? Because, well, language is the big adventure of my life. And I don't just mean literary language. I mean the thoughts we think when we're alone in the dark, or in the bath, or we're on a bus and we're making a speech to the nation. At a time when we're all given so many questionnaires with multiple choice answers, you know, uh, so when we travel or we stay in a hotel, are you satisfied, are you very satisfied, are you somewhat dissatisfied? We live in that that sort of world and we have to write our own questions. And we have to attempt to answer them. I don't like the way language has been shut down into five star ratings or three star ratings or multiple choice questionnaires and ticks and crosses. The novel is a very good home for the reach of the human mind with all its dimensions. And so, right now, for that reason, you know, I just can't wait to begin my next novel.
0: Now, you've mentioned Sophia, who's the narrator of Hot Milk, and um, at the centre is her relationship with her mother, Rose, who has lost the use of her legs sometimes. She's, She's a sort of completely mysterious character, as anyone who's familiar with your work will understand. Let's just hear a little bit from Sophia. Tonight,
3: someone is tapping at the windows of our beach apartment. I have checked twice and no one is there. It might be the seagulls or the wind-blowing sand from the beach. When I look in the mirror, I do not recognize myself. I am tanned, my hair has grown longer and wilder, my teeth look whiter against my dark skin, my eyes seem bigger, brighter, all the better to cry with, because my mother is shouting at me, shouting things like, you haven't tied my shoelaces properly. Every time I run to kneel at her feet and tie them again, they come undone until I finally sit on the floor, put her feet on my lap and untie all the old knots to make new knots. It was a long process of unpicking and unraveling and starting all over again. I asked her why she needed to wear shoes at all, especially shoes with laces. It was night and she wasn't planning on going out. I can think better in shoes with laces, she said. She is reclining on a chair, staring at the whitewashed wall while I attend to her feet. If she let me turn the chair, she would be staring at the night stars. It would be the smallest movement to change her view, but she is not interested. The stars seem to insult her. Every one of them offends her. She tells me she already has a view in her mind. It is of the Yorkshire wolds. She is walking the trail, the grass is lush and springy, rain falls softly on her hair. It is the lightest rain, and she has a cheese roll in her rucksack. I would like to do that walk with her in the Yorkshire wolds. I'd be happy to butter the rolls and read the map. She half smiles when I tell her this but it's as if she has already forsworn her feet to someone else. You are always so far away, Sophia. No, I'm always too close.
0: So there you have a daughter who's speaking about her life having been put in eclipse. And um, I, I'm fascinated immediately from the fact that you read right from the end of the novel Deborah, and this seems to me to be very perverse for a novelist to do but also entirely typical of you this is not a novel about plot it's not it doesn't contain spoilers.
3: Well there are no spoilers in that section I've read I was interested in how we use the body to gather to us love and affection and to control other people. And one of those ways, we learn as children, you know, that if we are unwell, if we're lucky, our parents will be extra kind and loving to us. So I'm interested in hypochondria. I'm interested because the hypochondriac, and that's all of us, actually, to one degree or another, but the really flamboyant hypochondriac presents to their GP, mysterious, unfathomable uh, symptoms. And as soon as the GP gets close to a diagnosis, another one is presented that's even more mysterious. And so it's sort of a way of not being fixed in a story. Don't tell me I have migraines because of this. So how is the body speaking? What what What's going on with Rose, this mother who, who can sometimes walk and sometimes can't? How are her symptoms chattering for her? And Sophia, her daughter, sees herself as a, as a kind of girl detective from a very young age, sleuthing her mother's symptoms. What's wrong with my mother? How can I put some sort of story together to describe my own mother's rage?
0: It's a very difficult relationship and a, you use a lot, you express in lots of different metaphorical ways a relationship between being loved and being beheaded, beloved and beheaded for example. And this is you know, central to the family relationship. And it's also, you also make the point that in Greek myth, Greek myths were mostly about unhappy families. At <laughs> yes. the centre of it, it is a, in one reading about an unhappy family.
3: Well, it's about kinship and about the changing structure of families. And As you say, the Medusa myth does tiptoe through hot milk and this is because uh, it's set in Almeria in the south of Spain and there are jellyfish in the sea and jellyfish are referred to as Medusas. Medusas,
0: which they are Medusas. I wondered almost if you'd made it up because it was so perfect that the jellyfish was called a Medusa.
3: Right. The Medusa myth is really about separating a woman from her subjectivity. It's about, as we know giving back the gaze. If anyone looks at her, she has this petrifying gaze. It's about the female gaze returned. And all of Hot Milk is about Sophia Papisteriadis' gaze. It's a gaze returned.
0: You do have this really interesting um, way of writing, which was clear from Swimming Home as well, and and from Black Vodka, your your short stories, which is that they seem quite simple on the surface, your storylines, but actually they're infinitely complicated they're a bit like as one of those Costa del Sol swimming pools that you look into you think you can see the bottom and then you realize you can't it's just the water's so clear that they're fathomless
3: (laughs) yeah I think that is that is my game at this moment in my writing life I want to create a deceptively simple surface which has a real depth charge and which can be read in, in in a variety of ways so in one way we have Dr. Gomez, who is the consultant uh, in Hot Milk, and he's a very eccentric character. Possibly with, with, a quack. <laughs> with gold teeth, absolutely. Uh, the question that Rose, the mother, asks and the reader asks is, is, is he a genius or is he a quack? Well, he's kind of based on Freud, a little bit more shamanic and a little bit more eccentric, and we can ask the same question of Freud. Was he a genius? Uh, was he a quack? So he was fun to write. I've always wanted to write a character like Gomerth. Yes, I like psychological thrillers because, in a way, we're all asking, you know, who done it? Where are the bodies buried? Of any kind of book, and it just it just suits my the arguments that I am chasing
0: in Hot Milk. So you say a psychological thriller, but this is not, as we said, as I said at the beginning, it is not plot-driven, so it isn't a psychological thriller in the terms in which a lot of people understand psychological thrillers. It's not a girl on a train. No. It's a girl looking into herself.
3: Well, it's a girl looking out at the world. She is looking into herself, but it's really important. It's not just an interior novel. Sophia Papastegiadis' gaze is very much out there on the recession, on politics, on austerity, on the, the way people behave and why, on power and powerlessness. So uh, it would be a mistake to say that it's a novel of the interior in its entirety. It's a novel about female subjectivity. So one of the things that happens that is that when a female character gazes back, it's seen as, as somehow interior But actually, she's looking out and she's describing what she is seeing. And it was my mission to give Sophia some subjectivity, the way she experiences things in her mind and things
0: in the world, the highest possible value. Now, one of the interesting, another of the interesting tricks you play is that it's anchored in a a physical reality. So, for example, you name check types of beer and she goes off to Athens and she meets her 60-something-year-old father who's married a girl who's the same age as Sophia, basically 40 years younger than her, who's very obsessed with the Greek recession, talks about austerity. So it's, it's moored in the real world as we recognise it. And yet it's always strange. These things seem to belong. It's almost like a Bunuel film. They seem to. It's like a San Miguel beer on the edge of a sort of <laughs> surreal swimming pool.
3: Yeah. Well, that's an aesthetic I enjoy. You know, I, I borrow quite a lot from Noir and from Hitchcock, actually. But when Sophia arrives in Athens, her stepmother is only four years older than her. She's also come in to really chase a debt with her father that can never be paid back because he abandoned her when she was a child. And I give Sophia a problem right from the start of the book which is that she has a surname, no one can spell or pronounce Sophia Papisteriades. So she has to carry her father's identity, but she doesn't really know him very well. So she's a bit from here, a bit from there. She was born in Britain. She has to figure out what to do with his name. And she kind of does figure that out in Athens when she goes in to chase an emotional debt.
0: And there she finds her stepmother, which is, almost feels wrong to call her a stepmother, but her stepmother reading Mansfield Park out loud <laughs> to, her, to her rather a rather ancient family who's, who's correcting her pronunciation. I wonder to what extent you're aware of a debt to a literary canon. I mean, how much he, is that a sort of sly nod to Jane Austen, another writer of families, unhappy <laughs> families, more coded?
3: Yes, I think it would really be Charlotte Bronte. And I thought a lot... As strange as it sounds, I thought a lot about Jane Eyre at times when I was writing Sophia Papistertiades because there's that absolutely brilliant monologue, as we know, that Jane delivers to Rochester, something like, I might be plain and obscure. I love that word, obscure, that Bronte chose. I might be plain and obscure, but I am a free woman and I have a will of my own. What a wonderful monologue that is it's its just it's so Sophia inherits if, if you're talking about a, a literary canon she might inherit something of that it's that wonderful word obscure for being written out of the center of things and put into the margins yes but but my own literary canon really is I would say Angela Carter uh, Marguerite Duras J.G. Ballard, and and then it becomes stranger, Elmore Leonard, Graham Greene, all of those two, and in particular Muriel Spark because of her her wit and her relentless satirical voice.
0: We've talked a lot about mother and daughter relationships, family relationships, but it's also a very sexy novel, isn't it? I mean, she has an erotic relationship with a German girl she meets... She's coming of age in terms of her own sensuality.
3: Yeah, she has a fluid sexuality. She also has an affair with a boy. And so I explore how Sophia just experiments with everything. Nothing has to be fixed. She, when she meets Juan, who works, he's, got, he's a student and he's got a holiday job on the beach tending to the tourists who've been stung by uh, the jellyfish, he says to her sophia it would appear that i am softer than you and you are harder than me is that true and so the book is kind of looking at the way women have had to become more armored sort of harder just just to survive because the world isn't organized and to their to their advantage and we certainly see that in Sophia's mother's case you know in Sophia's words she says that her mother's hopes and wishes had been dispersed in the winds and storms of a world not arranged to her advantage and with Ingrid Bauer again I'm just looking at the way they kind of circle each other and really desire each other and at one point Sophia asks of herself, well how much desire am I entitled to possess? So I look at a more fluid situation right through the book. I look at the way that families have become more fluid. What what does a modern family in the West actually look like? What does our desire actually feel like? And Sophia is an anthropologist and her gaze is an anthropological gaze, and in a sense, hot milk is her book. It's her anthropology.
0: Let's just move on to Stardust Nation, which is fascinating. I was wondering how it was going to be represented. I know Andre Klimowski because he has illustrated a lot for the, yes. for the Guardian, and I I always think of your novels are sun drenched I mean you come from South Africa there's something of the sun always in your novels (laughs) by a swimming pool out on the coast the Costa del Sol and yet here he is he's a Polish illustrator very dark expressionistic and he's put a very expressionistic look on Stardust Nation
3: yes Stardust Nation is a short story in my collection Black Vodka and it's about two men in an advertising agency And the strange premise is that one man has a nervous breakdown on behalf of the other. So it's a kind of identity theft. And what I was thinking there um, was, was something to do with the dynamics of bullying. Because what the bully does is he cannot feel whatever it is he's feeling. So he looks for somebody vulnerable who won't fight back and tries to make them feel whatever it is he can't feel. So maybe he feels powerless or rejected or angry. And it's very effective because then the person that he's found to bully will feel powerless, rejected, and angry. And that's a very peculiar dynamic to try and write a short story about. But why not? Let's let's just attempt something as impossible. And then the second part of that story is to do with advertising the ways in which commercials have to crash into the unconscious of the consumer and end with the message "Buy this product and the third element in stardust nation it looks at the ways in which we are all made of stardust that's physics and it's true so the story is a conversation between these three things Andre Klamowski, the artist, has an incredibly surrealist imagination, as do I. Boonwell again. Yes. He's- and he and he's witty. And he he and I set about figuring out how we were going to visually tell this complicated story. And so it's pared down um, to the bone really, and Andre's amazing images do all
0: the work. Did you have to rewrite it to fit it into the illustration boxes?
3: Yes, we chose the lines that would move the story on. We had to figure out how time pulls through the graphic novel and things like that, yeah.
0: That involves giving up quite a bit of ownership of your story, doesn't it? And do do you mind that? You've obviously worked collaboratively in the past.
3: Uh, Klimowski and I worked at the Royal College of Art together. He was Professor of illustration, and I was teaching writing in the animation department. And so we used to collaborate on various projects there, especially one called Visual Editor, which was all about visual narratives. So I think I, just because, you know, I spend 93% of my time absolutely immersed in language, it was great to really hand this over to Andre, to choose the lines and the parts of the story that we're going to, on the one hand, anchor readers and want to know, and you know, so that readers would want to turn the page, want to know what's going to happen and what was at stake. I think the graphic novel owes more to film than to literature.
0: You, you have gone from medium to medium. You, your last Swimming Home was published by a very small publisher. So you sort of were out in the wilderness before that happened, in a way, weren't you? And now you're back with Hamish Hamilton. And you're, a, you know, you're a Booker, almost a Booker Laureate, hopefully a Booker <laughs> Laureate in waiting. How do you feel about that journey?
3: Yes, I mean, anything can go wrong and anything can go right in a long writing career. And for many years in my own art life... I had very little recognition, so maybe I just have to keep writing novels.
2: And that's it for this week. Thanks to Deborah Levy and congratulations to all the Booker Prize shortlistees. Next week we hear from acclaimed Israeli novelist Amos Oz speaking with Jonathan Friedland about his new novel, Judas, set in the still-divided Jerusalem of 1959-60. If you're a bookworm, you might want to dip into our award-winning long-form journalism strand, The Long Reads. We have audio versions of these great articles in our Audio Long Reads podcast, which you can check out at theguardian.com slash podcasts. And as always, for more literary interviews, discussions and live events, search for Guardian Books Podcasts. You can find us on the Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud or install us on your smartphone. Just find us on your favourite podcast app. But for now, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. To find out more about how to set your website apart, head to squarespace.com Guardian. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.